According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me in the scriptures as once again we start looking at uh, the Lord's dealing with the hypocrisy, covetousness, worry, alertness, and uh, six other things. There's ten total items in this chapter. And uh, we're presently, this is Luke chapter 12, by the way, we're presently going down through verse 33 at the moment, 34 at the moment. We are in emphasis number six, the emphasis on worry, which is Luke 12, verses 22 through 34. We're about ready to wrap that up, and then we can move on into emphasis number seven, which is watchfulness in 35 through 48. In particular, uh, it gets mistaught a lot. Um, it's a passage on watchfulness, and so um, it preaches, and folks pay attention to it because um, there are applications to be made in the church age. However, we've got to be cautious. Jesus Christ was not a church age communicator in the sense that he's the head of the church, but when he's giving these messages here, he's not head of the church. The church hasn't started yet. He's a prophet in the dispensation of Israel. And so when you're talking about watchfulness, whether it's um, virgins and their, and their uh, wicks or whether it's uh, the, the rich man or the, the, the burglar break into the house or whenever the metaphors, any of the parables that are told, it is watchfulness from the perspective of Israel and the imminency of the return of, of the king, the return of the master, the inception of the kingdom and so forth. It is not rapture. All right. It is not rapture when we make our application for the church. We apply it to the rapture simply because that is our context for imminency in the church. But we've got to be careful and not to take the Jewish information and bring all of it across into our application because it's not ours. It is not our application. It is Israel's application in the expectation of their kingdom. So we'll uh, we'll have some fun with that and uh, go through the material there because it is very fruitful. For today, though, uh, let's uh, once again take a look at 22 through 34. And really, we ended up with the uh, near the end here in verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Again, a Jewish prophet speaking to the Jewish people in anticipation of the Jewish kingdom. But the Father has chosen gladly. And this is what we're focused on in terms of our vocabulary and uh, what we're going to see for the rest of this morning in terms of um, the Father's good pleasure. What it is that pleases the Father and how we keep ourselves in the Father's good pleasure. So those words in verse 32, chosen gladly, that's what we're highlighting here today. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Spirit, humble before the authority of God's Word. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and the truth of your Word, the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together. Father, I thank you for the early morning prayer meeting and the pastors and churches we were able to lift up in prayer and and to become fellow partakers, fellow helpers, fellow givers of thanks through the, uh, the prayer uh, intercession activity that you're teaching us even now in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Father, thank you for the pastors we prayed for. Thank you for the pastor who called me this morning and the fellowship we had during the ladies' prayer time as we uh, discussed the ongoing struggles and uh, the, the testing that's common to man. Father, all, all testing is common to man, but there's certain realms of testing that are common to pastors. And it was just a, a neat conversation to talk to him on the phone this morning. And I, I thank you for that. Now, Father, as we study to show ourselves approved, we ask for your guidance to take us into the uh, passages that we consider. Open the eyes of our understanding. In particular, show us in the uh, New Testament epistles the elements of your good pleasure that we need to focus on so that we might be pleasing in your sight, glorifying to your Son, and uh, laying up treasure for all eternity. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. I failed to jot down the slide number, so I'm just going to take a guess. That's not it. 
Nope, that's not it either. Temporal thinking must reorient to eternal thinking. Now that makes sense. We went through these. Emphasis number six, worry. There we go. Slide number 21. All right, this is the passage that begins, uh, for this reason I say to you, do not worry, literally stop worrying about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on, the soul and the body, the invisible part of humanity, the visible part of humanity. And God provides, God provides, and so we don't need to worry about it. We just need to walk by faith, watch what he provides, and praise him for it. For life is more than food, the body more than clothing. These are the items that are defined as contentment for us in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Food and clothing are the two necessities for contentment, but we don't have to be anxious about attaining them. They're included in the all things where we're told to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to let your request be made known. So if you're anxious about uh, temporal life circumstances and details, then you're disobeying the command that says do not be anxious or stop being anxious and uh, trust that the Father's faithful provision is there for you. Secondly, under point B, we saw the illustrations of the ravens and the lilies, verses 24 through 28. We didn't spend a whole lot of time on that because we've already covered many of these concepts in the Galilean ministry. Galilean ministry number 17 is the Sermon on the Mount. And in the context there of Matthew 6, um, we've already given you notes pertaining to birds and uh, flowers. Food and drink are not the search objects. They are not the search objects. We are seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Those are the search objects. Food and drink are details of life along the way. Food and drink is uh, a matter of course. It is something that we partake in as a matter of course. If we fail, then we're not going to physically live much longer, are we? If we don't eat and we don't drink. The Father knows we need them, but that's not why we're here. We're not here to eat. See, at least not earthly food. <laughs> Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. We understand that. And we don't want to go meteoric. And there's a verb there, meteoridzomai, that um, I, I think is quite vivid in the way it describes the up-in-the-air uh, circumstances where people just find themselves at a loss. They find themselves like a fish out of water or uh, out of your element, as it were, when just everything is up-in-the-air chaos. That's meteoridzomai, and uh, we're commanded not to do that there in verse 29. Do you not, uh, and you do not seek what you will eat. I'm sorry, verse 29 says, and do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. Stop meteoridzomaying as far as that goes. Point D then. Apart from a relationship with God, temporal life provision is a very real endeavor. See, all these things the Gentiles or the nations eagerly seek. And you get a little bit of an intensification from seeking when it renders it here, eagerly seek. And this is the way of the world, the way of the cosmos, the way of the nations, see. And uh, yes, if I didn't have a relationship with God, you bet I'd have a whole different value system, wouldn't I? You would too. Uh, each one of us certainly used to before we came, before we got saved, didn't we? And we fall back into that mindset quite often in periods of carnality, don't we? All right, I'm not just preaching to myself. This is the, the nature of carnality and spirituality in, in the Christian walk. And so when it says the Gentiles eagerly seek these things, understand if it's the way the world works, then we better evaluate what we're doing because we're, we're in a different realm. We're citizens of, a, of heaven. We have God's viewpoint on things, or we should. And, uh, and so uh, this is something we want to consider. If it's something the world's doing, look at it a second time and ask yourself, am I right for doing this? <laughs> okay, it's, uh, it's, it's worth evaluating to see, is my thinking lined up with the cosmos, or is my thinking lined up with God's approach to everything? For those with a relationship with God, the real seeking takes place in spiritual life. Seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. So is your, what is your focus? Is your focus primarily spiritual? 
Is your focus primarily the ministry and what your gift is, what your ministries are, where you fit in the body of Christ, the effects the Father's accomplishing through you, and the, the, the fruit you're going to bear from uh, one year to the next? And then, oh yeah, oh by the way, also, okay, yeah, during the span of those 40 years, I also, uh, uh, you know, had another career and made money and, and uh, lived in a house and raised children and, and things like that. Okay? When you can make temporal life the also and spiritual life the main portion of your thinking, then you've reached to the point where you're fulfilling this verse, where you're seeking first as a priority, as a, as a first and foremost spiritual, uh, spiritual life. But if it's temporal life first, see, where everything is career, money, uh, the house I'm living in, the and even... Let me tell you, even family, even wife and kids. See, what comes first? The kingdom of God and His righteousness. What comes first? Your obedience to Jesus Christ. Your part in the body of Christ. Your family in Christ. See, in any event, that's uh, the contrast in those verses there. So, um, you know, like uh, back in my law enforcement days, I didn't want to be a... Uh, a police officer who also went to church, right? Want to be a believer, a Christian, uh, a member of the royal family of God, see, who also happens to, in secular life, uh, work a career as whatever, okay? Put the first things first, make the also's also's, and uh, the orientation works out well. Which brought us to point E then. The Father's decision to provide the kingdom is a good pleasure choice. God the Father's decision to provide the kingdom is a good pleasure choice. Your Father has chosen. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Now there is a very complicated and thorough development that... uh, would be fruitful to do. We're not going to do it, but it would be fruitful to do if you've never stopped to consider the Father's choices. Stop to, at least in your mind, jot down a short list of different things that the Father has chosen and understand that there's differences between them. See, for instance, and this this is the problem, is that a lot of Calvinists or other folks that uh, want to emphasize a uh, an election uh, aspect don't typically break down distinctions between the different elections that exist, the different choosings that have occurred since the foundation of the world, the fact that ultimately Jesus Christ is the chosen one. Beyond that, Israel is a chosen nation. The church is a chosen people. And there are different choosings. There are corporate choosings. There are individual choosings. There are... um, Elections and selections that apply in different contexts. And so I think the problem is that folks try to just lump them all together and make one general election and equate it with, you know, predestination unto eternal life and say, well, that's what it is. See, in which case the kingdom is synonymous with being saved, synonymous with, uh, you know, not being condemned or not going to hell. And there is so much more to be broken down. For instance, what is the church's relationship to the kingdom? And is the kingdom of God the same as the kingdom of heaven? And is the kingdom of Israel the same as the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? And what does it mean when it says, Thy will be done, Thy kingdom come, as it is uh, you know, on earth as it is in heaven? See, is the Father's kingdom different from the Son's kingdom? Because the Son was the one that was praying to the Father, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. The Son speaking to the Father. And if there's a throne of God in the Lamb, how does that work? Seems both pedagogical and Christological. So, anyway, I just throw some ideas out here. Your Father has chosen you gladly to give you the kingdom as a Jewish prophet speaking to the Jewish people in a Jewish context for the coming Jewish kingdom. And... Uh, that's, that can't be the same as when Christ told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting. So there's different kingdoms that Jesus spoke of in different contexts, depending on his audience. 
And uh, if, if, we're, if we're not careful to break those down, then, then woe be unto us. Say, we're supposed to rightly divide the word of truth, not confuse things by lumping stuff together. All right. So the gracious choices the Father makes. The vocabulary for this study includes the verb eudakeo, number 2106, used 21 times in the Greek New Testament, and eudakia, number 2107, used nine times. Between the verb and the noun here, you've got 30 passages to consider. They are essential concepts for the believer to embrace. Dakeo is a thinking word. Oh, maybe not. I guess I don't have my underliner working. Okay. Dakeo is a thinking word, and uh, you, the prefix you, means well, and so it's well thinking or good pleasure. Now, we got through the gospel passages and the Corinthian passages last week. Am I correct? We got through the Corinthian passages. So that means we can pick it up with Galatians and work our way through the pastoral epistles and then on into um, the remainder of the New Testament. So let's pick it up then with Galatians 1.15. There were some of the earlier ones there by Paul that... Well, we should do okay. All right, Galatians 1.15. Most of you were here last week, right? And you haven't thought of anything else since then. You didn't go to a retreat. You didn't, uh, you know. <laughs> All right, Galatians 1.15. I've had some, uh, some people are like that. Eichmann or some of the other. John Eichmann, when he calls, you know, he starts off a conversation immediately where the last one ended. And, and and I just I, I didn't follow. You know, can can we back up a little bit? Can you set a context? You know, and it doesn't matter if it's been a week, two weeks, three months. Just you know, pick up the phone. Bob, it's John. Speaking of, and on he goes. No, I'm, I'm just teasing. He's a dear friend. I love him in the Lord. But occasionally, I need to stop and say, now, what were we talking about again? What? All right. He, the Lord has him in such an amazing place to teach, study and teach, study and teach, study and teach, and know uh, very little in terms of distraction other than Linda. So there's uh, a lot of fruit being born at the moment. All right, Galatians chapter 1. In uh, one of several places where Paul kind of runs through his testimony. Uh, I know some pastors are kind of poo-pooing on testimonies, but I sure see a lot of them in the uh, in Acts and the epistles that, uh, I mean, it is your story. That's what we're called to, to relate. And so there it is. He says, you have heard in verse 13 of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral tradition. And this is what happens, of course, when religion takes center stage and the zeal that comes in there in the satanic motivation of the pursuit of religion. But when God, and there's so much here in this verse, when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb. And I keep chewing on that. Okay, now set apart is sanctified, you know, the concepts of holiness and being consecrated and sanctified. And there's, there's applications there in terms of salvation, when we have positional sanctification, and then there's the Christian walk of holiness that we call uh, experiential sanctification. And then there's practical sanctification if somebody's set apart for a ministry uh, and such. Uh, obviously, in, in, our, in the eternal scale of things, we were set apart from the foundation of the world, Right? Uh, you can say at the moment of your salvation is when you're set apart in time. Uh, maybe after you've been trained, then you're set apart for service, for example. Uh, we read an account in Acts 13 where Paul and Barnabas were set apart for the missionary journey that, that the Holy Spirit sent them on. So there may be any number of times in the course of a believer's life where they're set apart for different, uh, in different uh, uh, approaches, but here's a, an amazing phrase: "From my mother's womb, set me apart, even from my mother's womb." And that's different from obviously point of salvation or ministry, and it's different from the foundation of the world set apart. So we're not talking about positional truth here at this point. 
Anyway, it's, it's a fascinating phrase, and it's, uh, it's one that I'm, I'm adding to the mix in some other studies in terms of what the father does when he opens the womb, uh, what the father does when he knits the, uh, the body in the womb, what the father does, he, he tells David and Jeremiah that he knew them in the womb, and, uh, and then when he brings them from the womb, at that point of physical birth, uh, what is the significance there? In any event, set me apart even from my mother's womb. I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't have all the answers on that verse here this morning. But then called me through his grace. Was that from his mother's womb? No, this is years later. That's right. Was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. And three years later, I went up to Jerusalem. See, I think all the world's greatest Bible teachers always get their training in the deserts of Arabia. Okay, I'm joking. Some of you know the story. That, uh, that my conviction of the pastor-teacher gift came when I was in the deserts of Arabia. I was a soldier in Desert Storm when I became convicted that my gift was pastor-teacher. And I sent 176, I think, letters to Pastor Ralph Braun. And he sent back 160-something back to me. And, uh, and so we corresponded during that, during that desert uh, time. And uh, when I came back, that's when training began. See. Ralph said he actually read all those letters the other day. He pulled them out of a box and read through all of them. I thought, Ralph, <laughs> got too much time on your hands. What are you, <laughs> what are you doing? That's yeah, all right. I sent 182 letters to Sharon, and she still has all those too. So someday, maybe grandkids can read them or something. I, I don't. Yeah, I don't plan on reading those ever again. Point being, though. It was the moment of his salvation or the moment of the revealing of Jesus Christ in Paul, is what this passage calls it, uh, on the Damascus Road, that uh, was the moment of God's good pleasure. He called me through his grace and he was pleased to reveal his son in me. The father is pleased to reveal his son in born again believers. Uh, obviously, he's also pleased that they're not going to die and go to hell. Okay, but the bigger picture is not just that uh, that they're saved, but that they are now a living exhibit of his son. A living exhibit of his son. Think about how the temple or the tabernacle first and then the temple was a replica of the heavenly reality. Well, guess what he has now? Every born again believer in the church age is a manifestation of His Son. What a treasure. What a blessing for the Father who loves His Son to see that spitting image in every one of us, at least so far as believers are growing in grace, being transformed in thinking, being renewed into that image, and so forth. A believer that's not growing uh, is going to come under the Father's discipline pretty quick because the Father wants to see His Son. He wants to see His Son being developed in you. And that's uh, the motivation there. Anyway, good pleasure is for God the Father to reveal His Son in you. That's what you want to write down. God the Father is well pleased when His Son is revealed through you. So if you're conducting your life tomorrow in a manner that doesn't reveal Jesus Christ, then understand you're not well pleasing to the Father and you're going to face some consequences of a displeased Father. But if... Your life tomorrow is revealing His Son in you, through you, to this lost and dying world. That will be very well pleasing to the Father, and you will face the blessing uh, consequences of a pleased Heavenly Father. So that's Galatians 1.15. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Here's another choosing. And this is uh, when you start to break down the distinctions between corporate election and individual election, uh, Israel election and church election, and so forth. This is a passage you have to consider. This is a corporate passage that speaks of our positional truth in Christ. 
And so the Eulogetas hymn of praise to the Father begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, corporately, collectively, positionally in Christ, just as he chose us in him. Okay, corporate election, positional election in Christ, in the body of Christ, that is the church before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. The kind intention of his will. Here's the Eutychia of his Thelema, the kind intention of his will. That the Father's plan is consistent with His good intention, consistent with His good will. This is why all things work together for good to those who are, love God, to those who are called according to His purpose, according to the kind intention of His will. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved One. Again, corporate election of the body of Christ in Christ is what we have in view there in verse 5. Glancing down now to verse 9. This whole package, this whole wealth that's ours as the body of Christ, he made known to us, is what he lavished on us in verse 8, in all wisdom and insight. Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. So there it is again. The purpose and plan of God is according to his kind intention. And it's his kind intention in Christ. The Father's intentions, kind intentions, are focused on Jesus Christ. The plan of God for the ages from Alpha to Omega is not about you. It's about Jesus Christ. And so far as you are a partaker in that plan is so far as you are uh, oriented to Christ. And so uh, he made known to us the mystery of his will. I wouldn't trade the church age for anything. I mean, the dispensation of Israel, you know, watching the David and Goliath battle would have been kind of cool. But to, to sacrifice the, uh, the royal family of God, positional truth, bride of Christ, in Christ, universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, gift of pastor, teacher, corporate body of a, of a uh, lampstand, local church, I wouldn't trade for all the David and Goliath battles or Red Sea crossings or anything else. All right. I'm kind of hoping we'll get the DVD recap when we get to heaven. We'll watch the, you know, watch the the scenes uh, up close. But in any event, so that's Ephesians one. Over to Philippians one. Philippians one. And isn't it interesting how throughout all the prison epistles, the Father's good pleasure was on Paul's mind. What's on your mind when you're in prison? Okay. Last time you went to prison. What was on your mind? Philippians 1.15. See, as uh, our friend over here in Huntsville can testify, <laughs> when you're in prison, you've got a lot of time to think. You've got a lot of time to meditate, to pray, to read your scriptures, to, to think. And uh, Paul clearly had that time and was cycling through the doctrine and considering the Father's good pleasure. It comes out in, in every epistle here. Philippians 1.15. Now, this is an application on the human realm. It's not God's good will here, but man's good will. And it's a little bit of irony on Paul's part. And he talks about, um, well, he says, verse 12, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Oh, here's Paul again, bragging again. These testimonies become bragamonies, blah, blah, blah. No. They are properly testifying to the grace of God. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul's not boasting in himself. Every time you give a testimony, every time you testify to an answer to prayer, to fruit being born or whatever, you're not claiming credit, or you shouldn't be. God gets the glory. And other people need to be informed. Because that multiplies the glory, the thanksgiving, the celebration, the value of the uh, worship for Jesus Christ. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. If you ever want to have some fun, do your historical studies on the Praetorian Guard. And here's Paul with an evangelism ministry among the Praetorian Guard. Imagine that. I mean, he had to be imprisoned. He had to go to Rome. Oh, well. 
Look what opportunity happens once it gets there. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. See, because he's communicating what God's doing through him, it's emboldening other believers. The fruit is multiplying. The encouragement is growing. Believers are uh, encouraged to uh, pursue their ministries because they see the example Paul's setting. But now here's the irony in verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. That's bad. <laughs> okay? That's not bad. I mean, that's not good. If, if, if uh, God gets motivated out of envy, thinking, man, look at all the people Paul's leaning to Christ. I better get busy. You know, he's envious over the size of a guy's parking lot or, you know, church membership or budget or something, right? And so he's got the wrong motivation for what he's doing. Clearly that's wrong. Or some also from goodwill, from good pleasure. Okay, Now that's the right motivation. See, God does everything after his own good pleasure. And if our thinking is being transformed into God's thinking, then don't we also have a good pleasure uh, application that we can make in the things we do? Shouldn't we want to uh, teach Sunday school according to good pleasure, our good pleasure, as our thinking is renewed, as, our, uh, as we become more Christ-like? And, and everything should be good pleasure because that's what the Father does. And we are to be fellow workers with the Father, imitators of Christ. And so some out of envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. And see, this is where Paul brings it back in his note of irony. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Now, he's not happy about the wrong motivation. That's not what he's rejoicing over. You know, the Lord will deal with that. And, and as soon as Paul gets out of prison, he'll deal with that. He's an apostle, and he'll, he'll deal with that. When he has the opportunity, but so he's not rejoicing in the motivation. He's rejoicing in the irony of the fact that Christ is being proclaimed. And because of the power is in the word, not the stupid human being teaching the word, uh, folks are going to get saved. <laughs> right. Folks are going to get saved despite the carnality of the uh, of the evangelist. And so he says, in this, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. So. What you want to glean out of Philippians 1.15 there is that, yes, God functions according to his good pleasure. We should do the same because that's what's going to be. That's effectively what happens when you're walking in love. Notice the good, the good pleasure in verse 15 is uh, equated with agape love in verse 16. The latter do it out of love. Okay, so if you have that operational function of love we learned about in 1 Corinthians 13, then uh, you can be confident that your good pleasure then is the Father's good pleasure in and through you. Okay, which gets us over to the next chapter, Philippians chapter 2. And um, verse 13. Because the Father's good pleasure... That he is faithful to accomplish to glorify his son from Alpha to Omega is right now, today, all day, every day, working through you. It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Boy, can we embrace that? Does that take the pressure off? <laughs> Do you feel like, you know, the, the weight of the ministry was hanging on you and dependent on you? And if you blew it, then everything was a wreck, you know? Now, we're not saying get sloppy and feel like you can blow something, but what we're saying is recognize that you're not doing the work. He's doing the work. Stay in fellowship. Stay humble. Keep oriented to grace, oriented to love. Be obedient as he leads and as he guides. And, uh, you know, if you mess up every so often and do something wrong, say something stupid, something thoughtless, well, that's another growing opportunity. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the day, though, is any purpose of God ever thwarted? Not one. Not once. Not one time. Not one way. Not ever. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. See, and this is the difference. I'm convinced this is the difference between in that good soil believer of the parable, uh, rocky ground, thorny ground, good soil believer. But even the good soil believer only bears fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Well, what's the difference? 
What's the difference in the yield, the crop production yield of those different believers? They all had the same good soil. I think the difference is, is those that got more of themselves out of the way. See, if you only get a, if you, if you, you know, still have 70% of yourself and everything, then you're going to bear that fruit 30 fold. <laughs> get down to where there's only 40% of you in the way, then you're going to yield a crop 60 fold. And if somehow you get yourself entirely out of the picture, then the Father can bear that fruit a hundredfold. And He is the one who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Colossians 1.19. What is the Father's good pleasure? So you keep telling me about the Father's good pleasure, the Father's good pleasure. What is it? Glorifying Christ. Magnifying Christ. For all the fullness to dwell in Christ. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. In eternity past, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect happiness with each other, perfect love, perfect fellowship. They didn't need creation. But the Father wanted creation. Why did He want creation? So that He could share His love for His Son with others. That He could produce creatures that would have capacity to love His Son the way He loves His Son. And then the son responded to that plan and said, you know what? I think that's a good plan because creatures with the father's capacity to love the son will also have the son's capacity to love the father and to serve the father and to magnify the father. And the son's in perfect agreement with the father's plan. And the Holy Spirit's in perfect agreement with the father and the, Holy, and the son. And so in total agreement, they put this plan into action. And you'll note back to verse 16. That all things have been created through him and for him. If you haven't underlined that for him yet, figure it out pretty quick. It's for him, for his purpose, for his glory, for his benefit, for his destiny. We're here for Christ. And uh, he also is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that he himself will come to have first place in everything if Jesus Christ is in first place in your life, then you've got a different attitude from God the Father. That's good pleasure. Is there anything legalistic about this? No. Nothing external or artificial. You see, the, the, it, what it is is motivational to the point where we're not adjusting behavior or following lists of do's and don'ts because we're trying to seek approval or we're trying to earn something or we're trying to score points. But we're motivated by the, uh, the good pleasure of the Father to put Jesus Christ first and foremost. And with that as a motivation, behavior follows. Behavior is adjusted when the motivation is properly focused. And then a grace ministry can relax and say, you know what, we're not, we're not wrapped around the axle about, you know, specific deeds of this and that, whatever else. The Holy Spirit will work on that. He'll convict. He'll, he'll work in that better than any legalistic religion ever could. All right. That's Colossians 1.19. 1 Thessalonians 2.8. <laughs> can you believe I almost... Uh, Tried to cram through all these passages last week in our final five minutes and <laughs> kept you five minutes long to try to cram through these things. I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad the Holy Spirit didn't let me do that. I think there's just so much meat here and so much um, encouragement. First Thessalonians two eight. Again, we're finding a well pleasing application that's not. Uh, it's, it's human rather than divine. We understand the divine is motivating it and working through it. And uh, in terms of the ministry, verse 3 says, Our exhortation does not come from error, impurity, or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines the heart. Your ministry is before the Lord, and you answer to the Lord. And uh, they're not flatterers, they're not uh, greed, they're not milking the flock, they're not trying to make a name for themselves. They're just serving the Lord, blessing people. 
We prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased. Here's the Eudicao. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our very own lives because you had become very dear to us. And so here's a principle you can glean out of this verse. Well-pleasing thinking is sacrificial. Well-pleasing thinking is sacrificial. The father was well-pleased and he gave a son. The son was well-pleased and he laid down his life. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy were well-pleased and they gave of themselves to the Thessalonian flock. We were uh, well-pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you'd become very dear to us. There's the application. Over to chapter 3. We've got another one. When we could endure it no longer, we thought it best. It was well-pleasing to be left behind in Athens alone. Now think about that. The expression, thought it best. Thought it best. And I think this is where human beings fall short. I know I do, right? When was the last time you made a choice and you weren't really sure about it, <laughs> but it just seemed like a good idea at the time? You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and then afterwards, you look back and you're like, what was I thinking? <laughs> Whatever led me to do that? Okay. So, ask yourself this. A good idea at the time, something that seems good, something that seems best, why does it seem best? What's motivating that impulse? Okay? Is it good pleasure? Is it the operational function of love? Is it that good pleasure? Can you, in your, in your, uh, in the application of your faith, say, you know what? Um, I'm not sure, but this is what seems best. This is what appears. This is what is well pleasing in my thinking. And you make that decision. You make that action on the on a faith basis. See, you're not doubting because whatever is doubt is sin, but you're not. So you're not on that end of the, of the wavering spectrum, right? You're not doubting, but neither are you completely convinced. You're in between total doubt and total conviction, okay? But it is a good pleasure conviction. It, it does appear to be the will of God. It appears to be pleasing, see? And on that basis, on that basis, give it to the Lord and relax, just give it to the Lord and relax. Say, Father, um, this is what appears to be what you have for me. It appears to be uh, this is uh, this is the choice I'm supposed to make, and I thank you for it. I believe it's well pleasing to me, well pleasing to you. This is the motivation of my heart. And if I'm wrong, <laughs> Father, I expect that you're going to overrule here somehow. <laughs> And know that I'm not trying to disobey. I'm not trying to be disobedient. I'm asking for a fish. You're not going to give me a snake. But Father, this is my conviction. This is my faith. Um, this is uh, what's well-pleasing. And this is what I intend to do. According to your will. Alright? And when you make that your prayer focus, not only are you fulfilling Romans 14, because it's not doubt. Whatever is doubt is sin. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in that which he approves. You're fulfilling Romans 14. You're fulfilling Matthew in the sense that you've asked for a fish. He's not going to give you a snake. You're fulfilling the, uh, the pattern that we have in David when David was fully set to build the temple. And then God had to send Nathan to stop him and say, no, no, that's not, you, you got the wrong idea. There. That's not the will of God. Your son's going to build the temple. Okay. He said, you're not wrong for the idea. It was a good idea. Okay. So just relax that you're making a faith decision. You're, you're under the leading of the, of the Lord. If you're wrong, you're wrong, but he knows your heart. He knows your heart that you're wrong simply by finite ignorance and, and limited understanding, not because of rebellion or selfish motivations. If it is truly a good pleasure. When we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind in Athens alone. They just, it was their good pleasure to say, you know what? Let's, uh, let's send 
Timothy back into Thessalonica and see what kind of fruit this 14-year-old kid can have. 12-year-old kid can have, okay? Depending on when you date Timothy and how young you think he is. All right, Second uh, Thessalonians one eleven and two twelve. To this end, we pray for you always. Here's a little insight into how spiritual leadership prays for a congregation. To this end, we pray for you always that uh, you would make your budget and have full parking lots and a productive building program. Oh, that's not what it says. (laughs) A local church isn't focused on building programs. That our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness that is every good pleasure and the work of faith with power. Every desire for goodness, every good pleasure that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. How's that for a definition, huh? That believers being built up in the faith, strengthened in the inner man, taught the word of God, will uh, be counted worthy of their calling with every desire fulfilled. Think about it. Because that's essentially, that is the devil's message, right? Every lie the devil ever offers promises the, the idiot human victim your wildest dreams. Everything you ever wanted. Everything you ever could want. You know, rub a bottle, genie comes out. Three wishes, anything you want. Whatever your heart desires. <laughs> and yet, It's not about what our heart desires until our heart gets transformed. It's what the Father's heart desires. It's the Father's good pleasure. It becomes our good pleasure. And this is what Paul's praying here, that our God would count you worthy and fulfill every desire for goodness, every good pleasure, every good pleasure, and the work of faith with power so the name of our Lord Jesus would be glorified in you, in you and Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see why good pleasure is important? You see why these are essential concepts for believers to embrace? It's fundamental for the operation of a local church. Are we walking in a manner worthy of our calling? Are we accomplishing the work of faith with power? Are we glorifying the name of Jesus Christ? Are we seeking the Father's good pleasure? Because if we're not, then we've got no business building that thing over there on Cross Park Drive. We ought to just shut our doors now and call it done. This is what a church needs to be about. Glorifying Jesus Christ, pleasing the Father. Next chapter over, chapter 2.12. There's another good pleasure out there. It's not God's good pleasure. It's the other Father's good pleasure. Your Father the devil. And that crowd, um, they're the ones that God gives over in the tribulational time. Antichrist is revealed once the church is removed. The restraint is lifted in this chapter, we see. And once the restrainer is lifted, the church is gone. The Antichrist can be unveiled. He has his own revelation in the revealing of the uh, Antichrist. And the whole world is just going to be amazed. They're going to go after him. They're going to love him. They're going to worship him. And you'll note, the dece- verse 10 says, well, verse 9, he's the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. With all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, for the perishing ones. Remember, we're no longer perishing ones because we're saved. Because they do not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Remember, after the rapture, total unbelievers on the planet. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence. What uh, Colonel Thiem wrote when he wrote that book on strong delusion. So that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but Eudokeo took pleasure in wickedness. They actually found good pleasure in wickedness in their rejection of the gospel message. That's why it's important for us to make sure that our good pleasure is lined up with God's good pleasure. Because if we're not transformed by the renewing of our mind, we will be conformed to this cosmos. 
not a good thing. All right, last ones then in Hebrews and in Second Peter. Hebrews 10, verse 6, 8, and 38. I've said many times, Hebrews is my favorite book of the 66. Chapter 10 is my favorite chapter. And here's three verses in this chapter. 10, 6. 10, 6. Then 10, 8. Then 10, 38. <laughs> Sometimes verses get funny when they're in chapter 10. Of any book, doesn't matter. Any book with ten chapters, because ten six is a code, ten eight is a code, ten thirty eight is a code. If you have a law enforcement background, you had to memorize one hundred ten codes. Then, anyway, ten six. In uh, this is a quote from the Old Testament. But when he comes again into the world, he says, "Sacrifice and offering you have not desire, but a body you have prepared for me." Oh, that's so powerful because his humanity actually goes back to. The beginning, but the body is when the God-Man entered into the uh, impregnated virgin. A body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Is it the external ritual that pleases the Father? No. The external ritual paints a picture, it tells a story. But it's the truth within that ritual that pleases the Father. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book it is written to me, I have come to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. See, that's what pleases the Father. Doing the Father's will. That's his good pleasure. And uh, this is what Jesus Christ exemplified. Down to verse 38, there's another Old Testament quote. My righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. You want to be pleasing to your heavenly father? Walk by faith. Walk by faith. And what do you know? Chapter 11. <laughs> Hall of Fame of Faith. How about that? Pleasing to the father. Finally then, Second Peter 1.17. 2 Peter 1.17. And this is kind of a quotation and recap from several that we saw in the uh, gospel last week. Peter's tem uh, testimony years later. Here's Peter, just like Paul, giving testimonies. He says, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We do not follow cleverly devised tales. I think much of what passes for evangelical Christianity today could be termed cleverly devised tales or cleverly devised ministry gimmicks. It's not what we're here for. You know, if it's clever, then it's too clever. <laughs> it's supposed to be simple, not clever. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Eutycho. Happened at his baptism, had, happened at the Mount of Transfiguration, happened in the, uh, at the cross. The statements of well-pleasing. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, beyond the fact of that taking place, what then does Paul or what then does Peter make use of it then in this in this context? He says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you would do well to pay attention. <laughs> All right. Jesus Christ is the son with whom the father is well pleased. What do you think your action ought to be? What do you think your role in needs to be? Let's celebrate Christ. He comes first. Let's imitate Christ. Let's manifest Christ. That's the Father's good pleasure. To which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Someday I'm going to understand the totality of that and I'll teach it. But I think the uh, clearly it addresses the internal realities that happen in your soul when you develop the Christ-like capacity 
to uh, to uh, begin fulfilling this in your own Christian walk. All right, so there's Peter's recollection of an event that had happened some 35 years prior and still was shaping his uh, walk and his ministry and the things there. All right, we'll come back next week then to point F, which is... Oh, no, no, no. I'm sorry. Last last issue before we get to point 9. I forgot. One more point. Back to Luke 12. Goodness. Back to Luke 12. Let's wrap up the last two verses here before we move on to the uh, seventh emphasis. Verses 33 and 34. Sell your possessions. Give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. An unfeeling treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is the capstone. This is the, the summary of the verses that preceded it. Including that rich idiot tearing down his barns and building new bigger barns. Including the um, orientation here to birds and, and uh, lilies. And uh, not worrying about wealth because God will be faithful to provide it for you. Seeking first the kingdom, these things will be added to you. So then the uh, admonition that comes to wrap this up then means that you can be oriented to charity. You can be oriented to a gracious charitability when you're not worked up yourself over aspects of covetousness and greed. So heavenly minded believers have the grace orientation to be truly charitable. Heavenly-minded believers have the grace orientation to be truly charitable. And I find this interesting. Just, you know, globally, which countries are the most charitable? Not the Muslim countries. Even though it's one of their five pillars, theoretically. It's not the um, secular humanist countries. Not the communist countries. You know, they've got their enforced governmental sharing of everything. It's not the Roman Catholic countries. They have a form of it, but it's always Rome first, virgin first. And, uh, you know, the poverty index in Roman countries is staggering. Latin America, and, and you know, when the Roman church dominates, just look at the, the poverty. Same thing in Muslim countries. No, not only is it Christian, but Protestant Christian nations. Evangelical nations with a significant evangelical Protestant orientation to Bible teaching are the most generous. It's just statistically undeniable. Heavenly minded believers have the grace orientation to be truly charitable. So sell your possessions and give to charity. Does that mean sell everything? You can't, you can't have a house. You can't have clothes. I mean, what do you, no. But it means that when you're evaluating what's yours and what's not yours, you realize that none of it's yours. It's all Christ. And if there's things that, uh, that you have that could benefit someone else at this moment of need, in other words, it doesn't fit in your barn and your friend over here with an empty barn, what are you going to do? Tear down your barn and build a bigger one? Or are you going to sell your possessions and give the charity? Make for yourself money belts which do not wear out. We'll say, how do you do that? Store up those treasures in heaven. That's right. And uh, an unfailing treasure in heaven. See, I think a lot of believers don't even have the the money belt to start with. They can't, can't make application. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is mammon, then that's who you're serving. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's one or the other. Either money controls you or you control money. What's your, what's your attitude towards it? So heavenly minded believers have the grace orientation to be truly charitable. Alright, so next week is then when we will get to main point nine, watchfulness. And we'll make sure when you get here next week, uh, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. <laughs> okay, you don't have to bring a lamp, but you should be dressed. And... Uh, Anyway, we'll talk about readiness. We'll talk about the imminency of the rapture, the trumpet. Of course, we may not be here next week, but that's, that will only serve to illustrate what we're going to learn in case, uh, in case we are here next week. All right, thank you, Father, for the truth, for the uh, admonishments of Scripture, for the reminder.
on this day that it's your pleasure that uh, you are bringing about to glorify your son. And so far as as uh, the local church is concerned, that that's our focus as well. Father, we could walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And Father, individually, you are at work in and through us both to will, mental attitude, and to do external activities of your good pleasure. So Father, help us uh, in the coming days to... Uh, prayerfully consider, to dwell on, to chew on these passages. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us that we might uh, come to understand the good pleasure on a very real and practical level that every day, every choice, every word spoken, everything we do would have your good pleasure as a part of its consideration. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.